AMU. The following podcast is brought to you by American Military University on behalf of In Public Safety. Welcome to the podcast In Public Safety Matters. I'm your host, Leishan Stelter. On today's episode, we'll focus on the role forensic science plays in criminal investigations, the incredible advancements in technology over the last few years, as well as the limitations and ongoing challenges in this field. We'll be discussing the capabilities and application of forensic science in the context of the high-profile serial murder conviction of Wayne Williams. Williams is serving life imprisonment for killing two adult men, but he is also believed to be responsible for at least 23 of the 30 murders of young black boys in the 1980s, which is often referred to as the Atlanta child murders. Williams was found guilty based partially on fiber evidence, which is where we'll be focusing our discussion today. To talk more about this, I'm joined by Dr. John Hager, who is a faculty member of criminal justice at American Military University. During the first year of his career, he was an autopsy technician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. After that, he spent 16 years as a death investigator specializing in forensic science for the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in Atlanta, Georgia. He has been teaching criminal justice and forensic science since 2004. John, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start our conversation today by providing a little more background about the Atlanta child murders. Obviously, this is a huge, very complex, high-profile serial case that spanned decades. But I'm hoping that you can provide our listeners with a brief overview of the case and focus particularly on the important role forensic science played in the conviction of Wayne Williams. Actually, the Wayne Williams case has resurfaced because, as you mentioned earlier, he was convicted for the killing of two adult men, but never charged for any of the child murders. So the families actually came forward and approached the Atlanta police and said, hey, can you have this reopened and recheck DNA? For closure, did he actually kill these children or not? So this is, I believe it's the third time it's actually been reopened and DNA has been retested. But since the 80s, when that first occurred, the technology for DNA analysis has improved. So they're going back and actually retesting stuff to see if Wayne Williams is actually linked to the actual children that have been killed. The reason why Wayne Williams was even a suspect in this case was during this time, the bodies were all being dumped in the Chattahoochee River. So they created a surveillance team to overlook the bridges along the Chattahoochee River. And one night, a surveillance team heard a splash in the water. Then a few minutes later, a car slowly drove off the bridge. It ended up being Wayne Williams. And then they were asking Wayne Williams, hey, why are you here at two or three in the morning when this was happening? Well, his story that he provided the police didn't make sense. But I guess that established probable cause for a search warrant for his house. Well, a couple of days later, an actually adult male actually surfaced from the Chattahoochee River from the same area in which they heard that splash. And the two adult males were, one was Nathaniel Cater and the other guy was Jimmy Ray Payne. And during the autopsies, they discovered on the bodies and on the clothing of these carpet fibers. And that became the primary evidence for his conviction for the murders of the two adults. In addition, there's a dog hair and eyewitness testimony. Those are the three primary, but the thing they focused on the most was the green fibers. And they did, there's the FBI law enforcement bulletin of May in 1984 that's actually posted online. And they go in great detail of the due diligence the police did 
to try to locate where these fibers possibly originated from. And so when it comes to trace evidence in cases like this, there's four primary types of trace evidence. It's going to be hairs, fibers, glass, and paint. And trace evidence is evidence that's not readily visible to the naked eye. So it takes some form of enhancement to see it. It could be something as little as a flashlight, some type of alternative light source, or it could be just microscopic. So they examined these carpet fibers and they had an unusual cross-section. So the police were searching all these different carpet manufacturers and figure out who would create this type of a carpet. So they went through all these different companies trying to figure out who created them. They found out that this particular carpet fiber was manufactured between 1967 and 1974. And those type of carpet fibers were used primarily in commercial buildings and in apartments. And the other trick about it was is that how many times are these carpets actually replaced? So they could have been replaced multiple times. Another thing is that they did extensive investigation on which companies may have created these carpet fibers or manufactured them. And so a lot of these companies that they were looking for actually don't even longer exist. So the primary question at the trial was, how many other houses had the same carpet? Is that something they can actually determine or not? And from what the sales records that they could find from one company, they know for a fact that they've had a total sales of 7,792 orders of this particular carpet fiber. So it's one in 7,792 that that carpet fiber came from Wayne Williams' house. Now, can trace evidence actually identify that a crime actually occurred? No, it's great for exclusion. Two different types of characteristics evidence actually has is class and individual characteristics. Class characteristics place something into a particular group, but you don't know exactly the specific origin of where it came from. Individual characteristics have unique characteristics in which you can, without a doubt, say this particular fiber came from this particular house and we definitely know the origin. It'd be similar to like if, if someone was wearing like an Old Navy t-shirt. There's millions of those produced every month, but they find an Old Navy t-shirt at a crime scene. Now, that'd be a class characteristic because we can't really narrow it down to what particular Old Navy t-shirt it came from. So when it comes down to fibers, such as with the Wayne Williams case, your trace evidence is great for excluding people, but it's hard for including them. So trace evidence has a lot of class characteristics, very little in individual characteristics. Now, if you go to hair, hair is a little bit different. If it has the follicle, of course, it'll have nuclear DNA, so you can actually individualize it to a particular person where it came from. But if it just sloughs off with no follicle, it can only be classified. So there's a guy by the name of Edmund Locard. He created the Locard Exchange Principle. And this is very important to Wayne Williams' case and any criminal investigation. Edmund Locard says, whenever two things come into contact, there's going to be a transfer of material. So for instance, if I gave someone a hug, there's a possibility of transfer of fibers from my shirt to their shirt or clothing. Now, let's say that person goes out and commits a crime and the fiber from my shirt that ended up on the guy who ended up committing the crime falls off at the scene. Now, just the mere presence of that fiber doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean I'm guilty of a crime or even a crime even occurred. Trace evidence is very transient. That means it can be easily altered. It can fall off, be blown off. Just because that presence of that fiber exists doesn't necessarily someone commit a crime. Like for Wayne Williams' case, for example, let's say one of those adult males was in another apartment which had those exact carpet fibers. How are they going to prove it actually came from Wayne Williams' apartment? That's the important thing about trace evidence is that it can primarily only be classified and not individualized. Now, Another thing of concern when you're looking at trace evidence too is that, or forensic evidence in general, is that its results are a matter of interpretation, meaning there's a human being that's interpreting results. Unlike, for example, if you take like DNA, 
they do the DNA analysis, if they followed all the protocols, there's not a matter of interpretation. There was also the results. Or you could go into something like a fracture match type evidence where duct tape's ripped, something's cut, something's torn, something's broken, and you can fit it back together like a jigsaw puzzle. That's individual characteristics. We know that this unknown came from that original source because it fits together like a puzzle. Otherwise, in most cases, forensic evidence is human interpretation, which, of course, can result in human error. And I was looking on the Innocence Project and the number of cases in which they've provided exonerations for, for unvalidated or improper forensic science was a total of 162. And there was a total of three people that were finally exonerated after years of prison as a result of improper forensic science and the evaluation of actually of hair. Even recently, within the past five years, in the news, there's been labs in which they were doing DNA analysis with tap water or doing evaluations of striations on a projectile without having a peer review. And all those cases had to be redone. So all these people could have been wrongfully convicted if the proper protocols aren't followed. So John, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be in the field, the person who's trying, responsible for interpreting some of this evidence and how that's supported by all the other different factors of a crime scene? The actual crime scene itself is a lot of folds in as far as determining actually what happened and what occurred interpretation because you may be at the scene and you may think you may think something's an entrance wound or an exit wound and at the autopsy it may actually prove different and then you have the lab examinations too and all that put together helps with a better interpretation of what actually occurred now Crime labs have certain protocols they have to follow. They go through the same accreditation. Of course, labs should be accredited or else their protocols aren't relevant. It's kind of like a university or educational system. If you're not accredited, your degree is meaningless. Same thing goes with crime labs. And they have certain protocols they have to follow. So if they don't follow those protocols and they'll have to testify to that, whether or not they're being truthful or not, that's another story. But there's certain protocols they have to follow in order for that interpretation to be scientific. So recently there was actually a murder case of this Kentucky football player that was killed back in the 90s. And later on, small pieces of evidence was actually a projectile. And the FBI actually came back and said, you know what, the process we used to examine this projectile to match it from the live rounds that were actually at his house was not validated. So they actually had to throw that evidence out and ended up resulting in a plea bargain, but it also disrupted the whole case. So the protocols that they have to follow will help eliminate some of that interpretation, but you have that CSI effect. If a forensic scientist is on the stand testifying to something, you're most likely to believe what they did was correct. Obviously, these cases are very high profile. The evidence is, especially in the Wayne Williams case, pretty scarce in terms of physical evidence. We'll be right back after this. The public service field offers satisfying ways to make a difference to people and their communities. At American Military University, you'll have the chance to learn great tools and strategies from highly experienced leaders, as well as develop the knowledge to create effective policies. Get the expertise you need to make changes to your community or even the world. Apply now at amuonline.com. Welcome back. When you're evaluating these small pieces of evidence Can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what's going through your mind and how, I don't want to say stressful, but how challenging that is just as an individual forensic scientist? The the biggest thing with trace evidence is actually contamination or even losing it because earlier I said it was transient, it can easily be lost. So in some cases, for instance, like Wayne Williams, 
most likely in those situations, they were some type of physical contact with these people. And so whenever there's crimes such as that, you're always considering DNA evidence that might be underneath the fingernails. There might be trace evidence on the clothing itself. So sometimes you can't because conditions at the crime scene aren't ideal like it is in an autopsy setting when they're trying to remove trace evidence. So you try to identify it earlier in the scene and maybe get it collected so it does not fall off. One thing about trace evidence, it can help what is we call this is associative evidence, meaning that it provides some type of linkage between the perpetrator victim and the scene. So being able to identify it is the first thing you want to do and then leave it for the lab to identify exactly what it is, what type of fiber it is, where could it possibly come from? And then you can use that as far as leads. So some precautions you take actually at scenes are if you can remove it from the body at the time without getting prior to the autopsy, perfect. And then always in cases of homicides, at least, you always put protective coverings over the hands. So in case trace evidence does fall off the hands, it falls off in the bag. Same goes to that's the same purpose for why you want to put a body in a body bag on a white sheet. Because if any of the evidence falls off, it will fall off into the white sheet and it's more visible to the naked eye. Because normally it would not be visible to the naked eye. Those are great tips. That's what I was actually going to ask you next from a forensic scientist perspective, like what your wish list would be for like every investigator at a crime scene, like here's what I want you to do to not contaminate this scene or to preserve evidence at this scene. Those are all really good tips. Is there anything else that you wish every investigator would do? You know, the thing about it, when you get to a scene, I tell students this all the time, 99% of the scenes are already contaminated. You wouldn't think it would be. Here's why is it contaminated because you have a possible witness that could have been there. You could have a passerby that could help maybe do CPR or something. A person who discovered a family member. You have first responders, the police and fire. The first responders, their mindset isn't to protect transient evidence or trace evidence. They're there to help the people who are injured. So they got contamination there. You have just mere contamination of the vehicles coming to the scene that could be disrupting evidence, and then all the investigative staff after that. So the likelihood of being it 100% preserved or pristine is slim to nil because you have all these different actors that are actually at a scene that could contaminate it at some point. Which kind of goes back to your point when you were talking about this fiber, very small amounts of fiber that was found on the body that they did trace back to Wayne Williams' house. I mean, that could have come from a lot of different sources. It was obviously a jury found that that was unlikely, but as you mentioned, crime scenes are highly contaminated and you really need many different pieces of evidence to paint that full picture of what happened and who might've been responsible for it. It's really interesting. The first step is actually just to look for trace evidence. Sometimes that just overlooked because they may think it's just meaningless. Well, this is a small piece that, you know, whatever. Same thing with blood spattering. I'm looking for its existence. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So um, there may be cases that aren't as involved as Wayne Williams, but you never know is that little piece of trace evidence might provide some type of linkage to someone or something that could lead to something else. So John, can you talk a little bit about some of the information you want to convey to students who are interested in becoming investigators about some of the things they should really be looking for at crime scenes? Always look up because you never know there might be evidence actually on the ceiling itself. And the other thing is that the absence of something is just as important as the presence of something. 
for example, if there's actually a shooting and there's no shell casings, that should be a red flag to say, you know what the possibility is? Uh, I highly doubt they went around and picked up the shell casings, so they probably used a revolver. So those are different things, or there's a void. can be an indicator. There was a shooting, and there's some little bit of blood spatter, but there's a void here. It could be an indicator of where the actual person was standing when they shot the person. So the absence of the blood is just as important as the presence of blood. That's really interesting. And it does take a different mindset to think about what's not there. It's not just what are you seeing, it's yeah. what are you not seeing. And that's a really interesting Correct. mindset, I guess. A lot of our listeners, I think, are investigators. They aren't necessarily familiar with all the details of forensic science. And I was wondering, is there communication between the forensic folks who evaluate data or evidence, rather, and the investigators themselves, because what I'm hoping that maybe you can shed some light on how to improve that communication if it doesn't exist as much as you think it should. Each crime lab, of course, the primary crime lab I worked with is the state. And these crime labs, they have published certain protocols of how evidence is supposed to be collected, preserved, and submitted. And you have to follow that protocol because what will happen is if they don't follow that particular protocol, yeah, they'll analyze it, but then they may have to put in their notes that, hey, this biological evidence is put in a plastic bag. You don't put biological evidence in plastic bags. So otherwise, you know, are the results valid? You're going to question that because it wasn't preserved correctly. So law enforcement agencies have protocols they have to follow in order to submit to the state crime lab. There's a the protocols they have to follow. Otherwise, any analysis at the crime lab, anything they do really won't be valid because it was initially collected and preserved incorrectly. So the collection of the evidence at the initial scene can make or break the case if it's not collected and preserved properly the way it should be in a condition in which it can be examined by a uh, forensic scientist. That's interesting because it takes both the investigators and the forensic scientists kind of working together, even if they're not working side by side. Obviously, they're all contributing information to the same eventual cause. And the other thing too, when you go from police department to police department, they each have their own different protocols too. So there isn't really a standard. Like for instance, as a death investigator, you go to every different county, every different county has different standards. And what makes it difficult in death investigation, this is, and this has been an ongoing conversation all the time, death investigations, there's no standards. So it varies from every jurisdiction to jurisdiction of what certain protocols are. So that makes it interesting too. Yeah, makes you have to learn on your feet, I'm sure, if you're the person who's traveling to crime scenes throughout the state. John, I wanted to see, is there anything else that we didn't really cover today that you wanted to share with our audience about forensic science and some of your experiences? You know, really the important thing is that even though most trace evidence can only be classified into a particular group, you still can't deny its value. It still has value because you never know. You may come across trace evidence or hair or something that actually might add value to the case. So I wouldn't totally disregard trace evidence, even though it's primarily only classified, but it can provide support to other existing evidence for a particular case. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise. This is very enlightening. And I think our uh, listeners will really appreciate learning a little more about forensic science and some of the pretty amazing things that it can do for their investigations. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners too for joining us for this episode of In Public Safety Matters. I'm Leishan Stelter. Be well and stay safe. For the latest public safety news, visit inpublicsafety.com and sign up for our daily newsletter. Thank you for listening.
AMU. American Military University.